Well, a big welcome to all of our campuses as they join us this morning, those of you that are joining us in Appleton and in Stevens Point, and if you're joining us online as well, good to have you a part of our service here in Green Bay and at Celebration Church. We invite you to be a part of that. I'm going to invite all of us to go ahead and stand with you at our campuses or right here in Green Bay, and let's together recite the Apostles' Creed, our statement of faith here at Celebration Church. Would you join with me as we say it together? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just a quick reminder, next week we're having our one big celebration, 10.30 at the Widener Center. Those of you from Appleton and Stevens Point that will be joining us as well. It's going to be a great time getting together all the campuses of Celebration Church. Don't miss out, out on that. Be a part of it. If you come to church here at 10.30 next Sunday, there ain't going to be nobody here, all right? Uh, so join us at the Widener Center. Don't forget to turn your clocks back Saturday night, else you'll be really early for the service, which won't be too bad. You can have a cup of coffee and be a part of it as well. This morning, we are really excited about having a very special guest speaker with us, a great friend of Celebration Church, Dr. Tim Kimmel. He's been here before. He's spoken before. He's done some of his... Uh, events here at the church as well. Dr. Kimmel is the founder and executive director of Family Matters, whose goal is to see families transformed by God's grace into instruments of reformation and restoration. He's the author of a number of books, Grace-Based Parenting, Raising Kids for True Greatness, The Grace-Filled Marriage, and his latest, Connecting the Church in the Home as well. So this morning, would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Tim Kimmel as he comes and shares God's word with us. Thank you, Nate. I love coming to this church. If I lived in Green Bay, this is where my wife and I would go to church. Uh, and and, and uh, I, I don't, uh, don't dress as cool as your pastor does, <laughs> but who does? He's amazing. I wish he were here. I want to talk to you about a trap that's very easy to fall into, even if you're a follower of Jesus. And if we want to live lives that make a difference, it's a trap we must work overtime to avoid. And I want to actually do double duty on it, not just talk to you and where you are in your life, but also if you have influence over another generation, maybe you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt and uncle, and you, have, you can voice into this new generation coming along. We have a responsibility to make sure that we're helping them aim their lives in the right direction, because if we drink the Kool-Aid of this world and this culture, we're going to end up barking up the wrong tree. It's like those people that say, you know, I, 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 I worked all my life to climb the ladder of success, and when I got there, I found it was leaning against the wrong building all the time. To set the stage for this, I want to take you on an airplane trip with my wife and I. We live in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area of Arizona, and we were flying to uh, Tampa, St. Pete, uh, area of Florida by way of Dallas. We switched planes in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we took off. 
I fly a lot, and because of that, I'm defaulted to those nice chairs in the front of the plane a lot, and on this flight, we were on those nice benches up front. About halfway through our flight, a man stood up, and he kind of cased that, uh, that front section of the plane, and he picked out the prettiest girl to hit on. I couldn't disagree with him. I thought he had superb taste. He came up next to my wife, and he got down on one knee, and he did one of those whispers that you, everybody could hear. He said, hey, beautiful lady, do you know who I am? She turned, his face was right here, bloodshot eyes, bourbon on his breath. He said, I- I'm sorry I don't recognize you. He stood up and said, I'm the great Bobby Hayes. She looked over at me and I looked up from my book and said, oh, Darcy, he was a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys back when we were in grad school. We've watched him play ball. Glad to be recognized, he filled in more of the resume. He says, I'm the fastest man in the world. The fastest man in the world looked like he was going to need to walk her to hit on a pretty girl. He says, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. He looked more like a spent casing, which is what happens when you have those guys spearing you so hard with those helmets. You know, when I was in college, I, I broke the NCAA record in 100. And because of that, I was drafted by the U.S. Olympic team, and I, and I represented us in the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. And it was there that I tied the world record in 100, and I broke the world record in the four-by. And then he reached in his blazer pocket. Yeah. He reached in his blazer pocket, and he put that gold medal right down in front of my wife and said, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes, girl. I'm the fastest man in the world. Well, she did what I think you're supposed to do. She held that gold medal in her hands and looked at that faded ribbon to his sad face. And, oh, Bobby, man, this is great to be able to see this and to meet you. And satisfied that he got what he wanted from us, which was recognition, he went into the coach section of the plane. We heard him say very clearly, the next, do you know who I am? He spent the rest of the flight introducing everybody to Bobby the Bullet Hayes. Our hearts broke for Bobby Hayes. It just broke for him. It broke because we thought, he, he doesn't think that we would think him, find him uh, interesting or significant unless he has some gigantic resume. I have a friend named Dan Bolin. He was participating in a 10K event that was being held at Texas A&M University. And, and, and the staging area was, uh, was right in the shadow of Kyle Field where the Aggies play football. There's a lot of people around stretching out and so forth. And then, but, but then he noticed a disturbance right over at the base of the, set, of, of the stadium. And he wondered what was up. And he went over there and he saw all these people gathered around a large industrial dumpster. He went over to look inside and there were hundreds of trophies and plaques inside this, this dumpster. Apparently, the athletic director at AM was making room for a whole new generation of champions. And he thought, man, people sacrifice years of their life for that moment when they could perform and gain these things, this kind of approval. And now, these, these things are all waiting for a truck to come and crush them to dust, and they're going to end up in a landfill. When they finally fired that gun that started that race and Dan was padding down the road, all they could think about is how many things have I lived my life for are going to someday end up in heaven's dumpster, get crushed to dust and thrown in this landfill. You see, it is so easy to get off course. Most people, and Christians included, have a tendency to aim their life at a future focused on success. 
It's part of us being brought up in a Western culture. Uh, it, it, this is something that, that we are we're kind of taught from the beginning, and everything about our culture is pushing us in that direction. But it's a fantasy to, to, to many times. It's a success illusion if we're not careful. And, and, and the reason I think it's a bad idea for us to focus our life on success is because of how we tend to measure success in our culture. And there are four basic uh, ways that we measure success in our culture. Uh, wealth, beauty, power, and fame. Wealth, beauty, power, and fame. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with any one of those things. I'm looking at a crowd of people that are easy on the eyes. You look like you're doing well financially. I'm sure that you have influence, and I'm sure you, you've done some things that could give you some wonderful uh, reputation. There's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves unless you need them to feel like you're complete. Unless you need them to feel like you have made it. Then you're in trouble. You often see this at Christmas time when you get the Christmas cards from your friends and, and then that little uh, uh, annual report drops out <laughs> and you open it up. And if you just take these four, four filters and put them in front of it, oftentimes you'll see these things jumping off the page at you. You, you, uh, you know, my, my, my son's captain of the football team. Our daughter is, is head of the student council. My, my son got a full ride to a Division I school. My daughter graduated... Got her first job, it's a six-figure income. First number's not a one. My son's engaged to a girl has like Angelina Jolie lips. You know, they're the real thick things. <laughs> now, by the way, don't get me wrong. Darcy and I are obviously, we love hearing about all the things that our friends' lives are, have gone through and their kids are doing, of course. But, but many times when we see these things, we know the reason they're reporting these things is because like so many people out there, this is what is driving them. This is what's most important to them. But here's the problem with aiming our lives at success. We can sabotage our personal impact on the world as well as our re eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living a truly great life. I'm going to say that one again. We can sabotage our personal impact on the world as well as our eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living truly great lives. There's nothing wrong with these things that they are just outcomes of your life. But when they, they're needed to define us, that's when we, then we, we, we've gone into the trap. When we over-prioritize wealth, beauty, power, and fame, we automatically set ourselves up to live a life that is self-absorbed, unnecessarily complicated, and one that's never satisfied. In fact, we actually, when we push this on our kids and the success illusion is about them, we actually invite sibling rivalry into the home. Because you got to understand, when it comes to success, you, in success, you win two ways. You win when you win, and you win when the person next to you loses. When, when they look worse than they are, we look better than we are. And so when we push the success illusion on our kids, we're actually inviting them to not desire the best of each other. To have a, uh, there's nothing wrong with competition because, you know, we had raised four kids, they were very competitive kids, but when it's toxic competition, then everything comes down in the process. When we live our lives for the measurements of success, we need to know a couple things. First of all, God places no value on these four things in the Bible. Now you gotta understand, 
I, I, I've said this like four times. There's nothing wrong with these, but he places no value on them. They're just things. Another thing is you don't even need God's help in living a life of success. All kinds of people that completely reject God are very successful in the world's eyes. And they can raise very successful kids if we're measuring them that way. And then another thing about the, uh, aiming our, our lives and, and our kids at that is we most likely are denying ourselves and maybe even our kids uh, relationships and vocational opportunities that God has more picked out for them. I've worked with families for, uh, for many decades now, and I'm amazed how often I have to help parents temper their words when they start disparaging someone that their kid has fallen in love with because they don't come from, with the right resume. They don't come from the right part of town with the, with the, with the, with the right uh, net worth behind them. Or, or they want to choose a vocation that doesn't necessarily pay well on payday, but it's a vital job. It's something they were put on, on the earth for. There's a lot of wonderful roles that people play out there that are strategic roles, but they're not, they're not going to get wealthy playing those roles. And who are they? Uh, police officers, firefighters, soldiers, teachers, social workers. These are vital people. They stick their, 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 their lives in the goo of everybody else's life to try and make things better. And, and we don't reward them high, but this is a wonderful vocation. I've seen parents discourage their kids away from that when it was clear that that's what God placed on their heart just because the success illusion had got the best of them. Here's the other reason why I think it's not a good idea to aim our lives or our kids' lives at that, and it's because we're aiming low. We're aiming real low. There's something far better, and the Bible explains what it is. God's word encourages us to aim our lives at a future of true greatness, of true greatness. To, set the, to give you a background on this, in Matthew chapter 19, a very well-off young person approached Jesus and basically said, how, how, do, I, how do I gain eternal life? And, and he was... He was one of these guys that, first of all, he was young and he was wealthy, so most likely he had inherited wealth. And, and he knew he could pretty much purchase his way through most of the things, the, the problems he faced, and he thought maybe he could do that with, with this. And Jesus said, well, you know, obey the commandments. And he, went, he says, I've done those since I was a kid. Well, Jesus understood his heart, and so he decided to go for the jugular. He said, I'll tell you what, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he got very discouraged and went away discouraged because he didn't want to pay that kind of a price. Now, listen, God was not saying that we all need to do that. That was not a, that was not a commandment for, for this particular person. He understood the problem in his heart and he went for that problem and he exposed it. Well, the problem is the disciples are sitting around when this conversation took place and after the guy left, Peter pulled him aside and said, hey, we did that. We left everything for you. He says, you did. And you know what? When, you get the, when we get into our kingdom in heaven, you each are going to sit on thrones and rule with me. Well, apparently James and John told their mother about this. And she approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, in the middle of the next chapter, she approaches Jesus and basically says, I have a request. What is it? Well, I, when, when you guys get into your kingdom, could, can my one boy sit on your immediate right and the other one on your immediate left in these thrones you're going to sit on? See, there's nothing new about the success illusion. Instead, ever since there were parents, there was people wanting preference 
for their, for their kids. And he said, look, who sits where is not my call. He said to the guys, are you worthy to carry the, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, drink this cup? And they said, we are. He said, well, in fact, you will, but who sits where is not my call. Well, then the other disciples found out that what they had done, and they were mad they, that they had brought their mother and they were hiding behind their mother to get this special treatment. Maybe they were thinking, why didn't we think of bringing our mothers to talk? I don't know what it was, but anyway, they, they were just frustrated and, and, and they started quibbling among themselves which one of them is deserving to have those preferential seats. And Jesus heard, about, heard what they were arguing about and he cut through it all. And he says, you know, the rulers, in Matthew 20, he says, you know, the rulers of this world lorded over those allotted to their charge. But not so with you. Whoever wants to be greatest among you should be servant of all. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You take this passage and then you take a passage like, uh, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, love your neighbor as yourself. You can take those and you can kind of put them together and actually we can come up with a good definition of what we mean by true greatness or what we're supposed to aim our life at. Let's define it this way. True greatness is a passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern for others. And that's what our lives should be. A passionate love for Jesus. And the way the, 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 the litmus test of whether our love for Jesus is a genuine, passionate heart, heart connection to Jesus is that we're outwardly focused. We can, we're concerned about everybody around us because you see, when we have his heart, he is a God that's outwardly focused. The irreducible essence of God is love. Active, outwardly focused love. And when we, and when we connect to him, that's what happens. And then it's our, it, God wants to use our heart connection to our kids to build that same kind of passionate love for him into them that will show itself in this unquenchable love and concern for others. But, but we, we fall short of that. Why is it so easily uh, to, to be drawn into the lives of of, of the superficial, shallow, and shallow rewards of success. Well, because we're human beings, and it's so much easier to, to live for time rather than eternity, for here rather than for there, for now rather than then, for earth rather than heaven. It's just, that's the way we are. But, but you know what, what I think sobers all of us is when we keep in mind how long we live and how long our kids live, because I actually know how long every one of you are gonna live. I know how long every one of your kids are gonna live. You're going to live forever. You live forever. Our, our physical death isn't a period marking the end of our existence. It's just a comma. And, and forever, a, a lot of what that's going to look like is being decided now by, first of all, the, uh, putting our faith in Jesus, that determines our destiny, and by by, by letting his love overflow us, it determines kind of what that, that, that destiny in heaven is going to look like. But, but because we get so focused on here, you know what that inclines us to do is swallow that, what I call it, I like to call it the poison pill of comparison. <laughs> Man, it's just pandemic, isn't it? Everything about the, the, the kind of messaging we get inclines us to compare. And we're either looking up to people that we, 
that we feel inferior to or looking down on people, we think superior to. And none of that represents the heart of God. But, but, but because that's where we come from, it's easy to fall into that. But, it, 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 but it's even more than just focusing too much on right now. It's also a byproduct of forgetting the cross, which is easy to do. We're going to have communion today. I'm grateful we, we have that because this church wants you to remember the cross, to remember why we're even here. Someone said to Bishop Desmond Tutu, a journey, they, they said that old line, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And Tutu corrected him. He says, no, it begins by taking the first step in the right direction. See, we've got to make sure that we are focusing our lives on, 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 on what it's all about. And, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, everything changed with that. Let, let me give you a, a great passage here from, uh, from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. I love this. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life. Think about it. You've died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Now, all that said doesn't mean that you can't make a relevant difference here. That you can't go out and function and work and, and, and have a nice lifestyle and, and make great memories and have fun and be easy on the eyes and take good care. It's not All that's part, part of it all, but it's just these are the B priorities that submit to that A priority of God who is first, who is everything, who defines us. And... and and when we do this, it, it, I think there's four wonderful qualities that just start to surface in the heart of people who are heart-connected to God. When his, his love overwhelms us, these are four qualities that should be coming out of our heart. And these are the four qualities we need to hand down to the next generation, to our kids. Let me rifle through those for you. First one is a humble heart. A humble heart. That's a reverence for God and a respect for others. I love this passage in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then to, to validate why he says we should do this, here, here's, if you read on the passage, he says, he says, have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although God, did not consider all the privileges of God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself, not of his deity or his godliness, but of all the privileges of it, and he took on human form and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So God is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done in his son. And Jesus set the stage for us on this. When I think of humility, what a wonderful calling card it is in relationships. It's also the best way for you to really get overwhelmed with the grace of God. In, in James, uh, I think it's in chapter 5, uh, Google it, uh, but I'm sure it's chapter 5. It says something like this. It says, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. 
And so if we want to just basically lock ourselves off from being God's gracious, pouring over, just go around arrogant and thinking we're something that we're not. He says, no, humility. And, 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 and uh, I'll give C.S. Lewis a couple of quotes here. Uh, first one, is, uh, I'll give one at the end, but I, I thought he did such a good job at differentiating what humility is and what it isn't. He, he, humility, he, he said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Does that make a difference there? Because when we're just, oh, I'm just pond scum, I'm nothing, I'm just dirt. You know, wait a minute, Jesus wouldn't die for pond scum. No, he, he saw incredible value and worth in every one of us in spite of our sin. And he wanted to lift us up and, and draw us more into his image. So a humble heart's the first quality. Second quality is a grateful heart. A grateful heart. That's an appreciation for what you've been given and who has given it to you. I love this, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the last service, there was a, a young man here who's uh, been two years into his struggle with MFs. But I heard him say, without prompting, he says, I, I'm, I'm thanking God for this now. At first, it just took me by surprise, and I was grieving and hurting, but I'm thanking God because I know he loves me. And he wouldn't do anything outside of that. And then even though this is not a journey I would choose, he's put me there and I'm trusting him in this. Give thanks in all things. And look at this. A, a third quality is a generous heart. A generous heart. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. Look at this. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Generous-hearted people find themselves enjoying an overwhelming sense of joy. The, the, the generosity that God gives back is not necessarily financial. Uh, that health-wealth stuff is a lot of hooey. You know, that, that, that's not what the Bible says. But he will overwhelm us with joy, with, with rich relationships, with deep friendships, with great purpose. Besides a humble heart, a grateful heart, and a generous heart, the fourth quality that comes out of a heart of true greatness is a servant's heart, a servant's heart. In Matthew chapter 25, just before we come into those passages about the crucifixion, Jesus is spending some final words with his disciples, and he talks about the last judgment. He says, we're gonna separate the sheep from the goats, and the, and, and, and the goats represented the people that don't know him, and, 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 on, and, and they go into judgment. But, but for the sheep, he, he, he's, he's, he's evaluating them. He says, you know, I was naked, and you, and, and you clothed me. I was thirsty. You gave me water. And, and, and I was sick. You, you do doctored me. And I was in prison. You visited me. And they said, when did we ever do that for you? He said, when you've done it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. When we are outwardly focused because of this overwhelming love for Jesus Christ, when he's coming through us and loving others, it's amazing how we are pouring God's grace and mercy and love over other people. And we can do that without showboating. We can do that without jamming Jesus down their throat. We can do that without being obnoxious. We can do that just by being authentic, real, caring people. And when we, we have these qualities, living, breathing, and quantifiable in our life, it sets us up to answer the three biggest questions that most of us will face. And the three biggest questions our kids have to face. I'm gonna end with this. First question is, what is my mission in life going to be? In other words, what am I gonna do with what God has given me to do? Here's the cool thing. The marketplace is hungry 
for people who are humble and grateful and generous and servant-hearted. Obviously, we have to have education and skill set and all that stuff. And that goes without saying. We can get that in there. But, but when you have that there, and then that is embedded inside a, 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 a heart that is overwhelmed with humility, gratefulness, generosity, service, spirit. The, the, the companies want to hire these kind of people because they, they care about others. They care about their fellow workers. They care about the reputation of the company. They care about the customers. They can be trusted with the assets of the company. They desire the best for the reputation of the company. You, you, you guarantee your kids work <laughs> when you build these into their, into their heart. And should your should you, your, your kids be, let's say, called to some job that is rewarded very well on payday, they're more likely to hold that in much more of an open hand. But should they be called to some uh, line of work that doesn't necessarily re, re, pay real well, uh, high up next to the you know, standards of wealth, but that's what they're called to do, then they're more likely to handle that money better, be better stewards of it, and be far more contented. Second big question, besides what their mission life is going to be, who's their mate going to be? Who's their mate going to be? Now, uh, there's some people that God calls to, to, for him to be their mate the whole way through. <laughs> but, for, but for most people, they end up marri being married. Here's the cool thing about truly great kids is they tend to fall in love with truly great people. There's an old saying that says you're either doubled or halved on your wedding day. It's true. <laughs> But truly great people are quadrupled on their wedding day. Think of the wedding gift you give your kids when you build these four wonderful qualities into their heart. And here's what's interesting. I'm going to say this and you're going to think I've lost my mind. It is easy to build these four qualities into your kids' lives. Even though you're starting with kids that are, you know, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked is what Jeremiah says, that you're raising sinners. <laughs> and you wish that... Fisher-Price made a baby taser or something, you know, sometimes everyone's, not the big cop kind that really hurts them, but just something to lock some good, you know. <laughs> but it's actually easy to build these into your kids' lives. And, but as soon as I tell you how, then you're not going to like the solution. Here's how. Make them the DNA of your own. Make these qualities the qualities your kids always see coming out of you. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, they see a humble heart, a grateful heart, a generous heart, a servant's heart. That's, that's the starting point. Second thing is make humility, gratefulness, generosity, a servant spirit the expectation in your home, not the exception. In other words, that's the only thing that works. And when they give you humility, gratefulness, generosity, service, spirit, life goes smoothly for them. They give you arrogance. They give you ungratefulness. They don't want to help. They, 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 they want to be stingy. That always gets pushed back. That always costs them. And eventually they realize, man, this, this, this path here doesn't work. This one does. And then, then give them an opportunity after opportunity to experience these things and put it, put it in, 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 in place. Here's the cool thing. When, when we put our faith in Jesus, he's overwhelmed us with his power and presence, and these things are coming out. See, people that are, that, that, that are passionately in love with Jesus, those kind of families, it should be better for everybody on your block that you live there or your, your apartment. That, 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 that this family lives there, that we're outwardly focused, caring about it. It should be better when your kids go to school and they get into that classroom, for everybody in that class. When we go to work, 
That's, that's how this is supposed to show up. And, 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 and it makes it so much easier when we get married because you know, every marriage has struggles and all, but truly great people get over stuff faster. They, they, they see, they're more quicker to see their own contribution to it. I think they age better. They, they just pace themselves, everything goes better. Second, third, the third thing, what's the first one? Is my mission in life? Who's, who's my making? The third one, who's my master going to be? Who's my master going to be? Listen, it, there's not a question of whether you are going to be mastered. That is a foregone conclusion. The only choice we have is by whom? But we're all mastered by someone or something. Bob Dylan had an album called Slow Train Coming. There's a great song on it. The lyrics go something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And since we are, why don't we line up with Joshua and say, that's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve him. Once again, C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. You know, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. See, God calls us in his love as we, trans as we give our hearts to him. He says, I want to overwhelm you with that irreducible essence of who I am, my love. And I want it to start spilling over, with, especially with the people up close to your, your marriage. Have a, a grace, a, a marriage that's filled with his grace and, and a home where the, the atmosphere is, 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 is temperature. The temperature setting is at his gracious heart. And then to the people we come in contact with. I close with this. You know, sometimes, uh, I know for myself, drinking that Kool-Aid of this world is, oh, it's easy to do. And God has to take me to the woodshed to remind me what's most important uh, every once in a while. And my wife and I were invited to an event that was being held in Amsterdam. It was sponsored by the Billy Graham ministry. And what they did is they invited itinerant speakers from all over the world to come to this event. Itinerant speaker is someone who travels for their, their, their ministry. And, and, and I'm one of those. And apparently God doesn't trust me with the church much longer than a weekend. Uh, you know, that was enough. You can move on now. But anyway, so there was a lot of, and, and there was about 15,000 people that showed up. And most of them were from third, the third world and the developing nations. But there were some of us from the West. And uh, we had the plenary speakers like Billy Graham and Luis Palau and Billy Kim and all this stuff. But then we would break into these, these other uh, breakout things. And Darcy and I decided, well, let's split up and we'll go to double down on these things and share notes. And I went to one on prayer. And there was about a thousand of us in this, this room and the guy kind of taught us about the strategic role of prayer in our ministries. And then in the last minutes though, he, he left like 10 minutes, he said, now I want you to kind of team up with somebody and pray, uh, pray, pray with somebody. And, and, and I was sitting in the back row all by myself and then people just started moving around and, and, and I mean immediately this guy came right around and came down my aisle and he was a short man and, and he had uh, you know, uh, 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 dark eyes, black eyes, black hair, straight black hair, uh, 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 bronze skin and a big smile. And he came up to me and you gotta, I'm just gonna be transparent with you. I was looking around for somebody else. I really was. I'm thinking, come on, what do we have? 
and he came up here and he shook my hand and he gave me his name and I couldn't understand it. He was from Sri Lanka and I didn't, I didn't catch his name. But he, he, he had broken English, but he, he asked me, where are you from? I said, from the United States. He said, oh, I'm so glad. I was hoping I would get to meet somebody from the U.S. and spend time with someone from the U.S. And here I am looking around and he said, we'll pray together. I thought, okay, we're stuck. And we sat down there and... and uh, and he right away started to ask me about myself and my family, and I had a picture of my family in my Bible, and, 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 and I uh, just had a couple of kids at a time, and I told him about Darcy and Karis and Cody and so forth, and he's writing down their names, and, and he said, how can I pray for you? And, and, and I said, well, pray. I said something lame, like, pray when I go out, people will, like, pay attention or something like that. And then he started to pray, and as soon as he started to pray, I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Because he was praying with such passion. And, and you could just tell God stopped everything to hear him. You know, he, he dialed and is one of his favorites. And he's just pouring out his heart to God on my behalf. And then he started praying for me and Darcy and my kids by name, but he was not looking at his notes. He'd already memorized their names because I was looking right at him. And he'd already memorized my family's names. He cared that much. He poured out his heart for them. And he prayed for how people receive, you know, messages. Then... When he was done, I said, oh, okay, how can I pray for you? And I'm going to talk the way he talked, not to put down his, it was just kind of sweet how he talked. But he said, he had this broken, oh, Mr. Tim, pray. When I go out to bring the, the matchless gospel, the precious gospel message to villages that I can find a safe tree to sleep in at night. You know, I'm writing this down. And I stopped. You sleep in trees? Yeah. Why don't you sleep in a hotel? You see, that's something stupid that a Westerner would say. Oh, where I go, many, there's no, many times there's no hotels. Plus, that takes money, and we, we don't have any money. I had more throwaway money in my front pocket than this guy probably sees in a year. And I said, well, why don't you stay with somebody? You know, things, oh, where I go, they're hostile to gospel. And if they were nice to me, they could be punished and per persecuted after I leave. Oh, so you sleep in trees, Yeah. I'm looking at my notes. What's a safe tree? Because he said, find a safe tree. I said, What's a safe tree? He said, oh, Mr. Tim, one night I was asleep, deep asleep, and I woke up and this vicious reptile had wrapped himself around me and was squeezing me to, to death. And I fought for my life. A python had gotten him. And they crush you until you suffocate. And then they die. He says, I fought for my life to get away from them. But ever since then, I have a hard time falling asleep in the trees. And I'm thinking how when I come to a hotel and, you know, room service still isn't open or, you know, the pillows. And I'm thinking, why? After that, he still goes up in those trees because he's got to get that gospel out to those people. He cares that much. You know, you know when, when God's heart overwhelms us and, and, and his love is defining us, it's just going to be outwardly focused. And people... Uh, will we'll sense the, the, the presence of the Lord and the Spirit in the way we live. And that's, that's our message for today. That's, that's, that's our calling, that God, would, that we would let him not just believe in him, just not, not know all about him, but let love him and let him love in return through us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for everyone in this room. You know, and everyone that's watching this, you know everybody's story. You know our backstory. You know our journey. You know all the wrong alleys we've gone down. You know, you know the stuff about us we hope nobody ever finds out about. And yet you love us completely. I just pray, dear Lord, oh Lord, I pray for 
all of us, that we will be in a state of surrender to you and let your spirit wash over us and define us and your love become the DNA of how we deal with other people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.